Before we open up the word, <clears throat> would you please bow your head? And so, Father, thank you for um, a message that we've been able to present to this community, a message that um, people desperately need to hear about your great love that sent your Son into this world. Thank you for your word that tells us that. Thank you for your kindness to write that in a book so that we can understand your heart. And now as we open your word again, uh, teach us uh, your heart some more. Help us to understand a little bit more about you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My sister and brother-in-law were visiting with us over Thanksgiving. They moved out to Seattle about a year and a half ago, and this was their first visit back into this area, so it was fun to have them. And uh, <clears throat> in one of the many, many conversations uh, I had with my brother-in-law, uh, one of them, we were talking about quantum physics. Yes, that's right. A subject I know absolutely nothing about. Now, my brother-in-law uh, is a scientist, a PhD biochemist, uh, and at 92 years old, one of the sharpest guys uh, I know, a uh, brilliant, brilliant man, and um, uh, he hasn't missed a beat. Uh, so he's, it was kind of a one-sided conversation, obviously, as he's talking about quantum physics. I would occasionally say, uh-huh, and then grunt, you know, a few times, and, um, and, and that was it, because I know nothing about quantum physics. I can't even spell it. Um, well, one thing I do know a little bit about is the originator and the creator of quantum physics, God himself, because God has revealed himself in his word. God has communicated his heart to us. He's told us about himself in his word, and he's also told us about himself in his son, the unfathomable God, the unsearchable God. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways, how true is that? If I don't, can't understand one iota of quantum physics, how in the world can I understand the one who created it? But he's communicated himself to us and he's done it through his son. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus, very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world, left his divine privileges in heaven's glory, stepped into our world, wrapped himself up in humanity, and explained God. We want to know the unknowable God? Look to Jesus. We want to understand the depth and the understanding of God? Look to Jesus. Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, writes John. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has explained him. Now this morning, we're going to continue this little series on Christ the Living Word and look at another passage where Jesus explains God to us. 
So take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version. And verse 9 says, Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened, verse 10, that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and we know from other gospel accounts, the house was actually Matthew's. Matthew invited Jesus into his home. He's reclining at the table, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners were there. They came dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating and drinking, eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this, and he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now the story centers around this key figure, Matthew, whose name is associated with this gospel account. Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And we need to know something about the, the, um, the craziness of Jesus to call Matthew as one of his disciples. Tax collectors were on the lowest of the low and the bottom of the, the social um, um, level in terms of Judaism. Matthew was a Jew. In fact, the other gospel accounts say his name was Levi, very Jewish name. But he's working in cahoots with the Romans, the hated Romans. He is a tax collector collecting money for the Roman government. The Jewish people hated the Romans, but they hated someone more than the Romans, and it was their own people who were working in cahoots with the Romans. They were well-dressed, sophisticated criminals. They were the ancient mafia of the day, these tax collectors. And they had a great little scheme going on. Rome required a certain amount of taxes. There would be a tax, a poll tax on all males age 14 and above, on females age 12 and above, they would tax food, they would tax roads, they would tax bridges, whatever they wanted to, they would tax. Romans would get their share of what they wanted, and then they didn't care if the tax collectors doubled it or tripled it and pocketed the rest. These guys were making out like bandits. They made a lot of money, these tax collectors. They made a lot of money on the backs of their own people. And so the average Jew would look at these tax collectors and say, they're traitors. <laughs> they were hated, they were despised, they were the most despicable folks, but they could do nothing about it because they're in that tax collector booth. There were also Roman soldiers People could do nothing because these evil tax collectors had the power of Rome behind them. 
Now here's this amazing thing. Jesus is passing by one of these tax collecting booths. And there was Matthew the tax collector and Jesus says, follow me, follow me. A more amazing thing is Matthew got up and followed him. Um, Matthew does another amazing thing in verse 10 and has a dinner. Jesus is there reclining at the table in his house. And to put emphasis on, Matthew doesn't want us to miss this as he, he writes this account, as he remembers it. He says, behold, right there in the text, he says, hey, look at this. Hey, catch this. Many tax collectors and sinners were there dining with Jesus and his disciples. Many were there. Matthew wants us to realize something very bizarre was taking place. Jesus and his disciples were in a place that no respectable Jew would dare to be. In the lavish home, yes, lavish home, of a tax collector and his friends. And there was Jesus, and I'm sure his very nervous disciples eating and drinking with the tax collectors. To, to be in that setting would imply at, at least a certain level of friendship. To eat and recline with people was a sign of, of, a, of a certain amount of intimacy and closeness and relationship. Um, Mark's account of this very passage says there were many tax collectors and sinners there for they had been following Jesus. Whatever it was about Jesus, they were intrigued by this guy. We don't know, what it, was it his, the words he said, was it his, 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 um, his heart, his, his, his compassion that was so evidently displayed? But they're following him. And when Matthew is called to be one of his own, come follow me, and Matthew sends out invitations to a dinner party where Jesus and the disciples are going to be in his home. They RSVP'd like crazy. The house is full. There were many there. And they were having a party. Good time was had by all in this intimate setting. Friends with friends. Well, there were others who, of course, were following Jesus. They were keeping an eye on him, and it was the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And in those homes in that era, that there would probably open uh, windows and openness, and, and the music was no doubt loud, and the laughter was going around loudly, and, and the Pharisees have followed Jesus, and they see him eating and drinking with such vile sinners. They can't help themselves, verse 11, and they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? The, the, there were religious leaders called scribes and lawyers who were the theologians of Judaism. They would be in their hallowed halls and they would debate the theology of the Old Testament. But the Pharisees, they were the law police 
they cared that people followed the law to a T. In fact, they had come up with all these other rules and regulations to help uh, define what the law said. They were the law police, and boy, they're keeping their eye on Jesus. And here he is doing something no respectable Jew should be doing according to their understanding of the law. Why is your teacher, they specifically use that word, you know, the one who teaches you about the law, the one who teaches you about the Old Testament scriptures, why is he dining with such sinners? What Jesus was doing truly was unheard of. Now, it's upon hearing that rebuke that Jesus responds to them in verse 12 with that classic statement, the living word speaks these living words. Jesus heard this and he said in verse 12, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Perfect logic, right? Who could dispute it? Then he says in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come for sick people. I've come to call sinners, not righteous. What is Jesus saying here? Is this a a compliment he's giving to the religious Pharisees? Or some veiled warning? Notice, Jesus ties what he just said back into the Old Testament to the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, God said this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For, for your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Hosea was a contemporary prophet to Isaiah. We studied the book of Isaiah last year. 8th century B.C., Israel was a mess. They'd walked away from God. And God had raised up these prophets like Hosea. And he sensed almost this, the frustration, the holy frustration that God had with his people. Oh, Ephraim, that's Israel. What should I do with you? Oh, Judah, what should I do with you? Your loyalty, your, your chesed, your loyal love. It's, it's like a morning mist. It's, it's, it's here and then it's gone. He said in verse 7, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have, been, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. I mean, these are sinful times for the people of Israel. And God is calling them out on it. He had a real problem with Israel. Murderers, adulterers, leaders of the people who had no heart for God. 
like Adam of old who sinned and turned his back on God. So here were people dealing treacherously with God. But in the midst of saying all this, in verse 6, God said this, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I delight in loyalty, in mercy, and not your externals, not your sacrificial system, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What is God saying here? What does is, what is he delight in? He says, I, I delight in that which is in the internal, not just your external performance. What I care about is your heart of intimacy for me. Do you know me? Oh, you're bringing your burnt offerings, you're doing all the religious stuff, but your heart is far away. Do you love me? And do you love others? You're murdering, you're adulterers, you're thieves, and yet you have all the externals in place. And God is saying, look, I care about your heart. I care about you loving me and loving others. That's what God delights in. I think of, um, of Ezekiel chapter 34. God said this about a hundred some years later after Hosea and through the prophet Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you dominate them. And then God said, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I'm going to deliver them from all the places which they've been scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. God's passion. Do you care for others? And how people cared for others would reflect how they cared for God. Now, back in Matthew, the Pharisees had totally forgotten this, had totally forgotten about the character of God. And so Jesus tells them, go and learn this. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. You have totally forgotten my heart. You've totally forgotten my plan. You've totally forgotten I'm a God of compassion. I desire mercy, not institutionalized forms. What he's saying is, I have, you have forgotten about my servant from Isaiah chapter 50, 53. Surely our griefs the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, bore our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord is pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the the Lord will prosper his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied because by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Go and learn what this means. I desire not your externals, your religious forms. What I desire is a heart of mercy, loyal in your love for me, compassion lived out, and mercy to others. The Pharisees that day, whispering into the ears of the disciples, why is your teacher doing this? And Jesus chastised them and say, go do your Bible study. Go and learn this. God is a compassionate, merciful God who pursues the helpless. The Messiah had come for sinners, not for righteous. The great physician had come for the sick, not for the well. And what Jesus is saying is very poignant when he says, I am of no benefit to you who would think you are righteous. Because I didn't come for righteous. I only came for sinners. If Jesus is going to benefit anybody, he's only going to benefit the sinners. The only person, the only person whose sins can be dealt with is the person who realizes they have them. Before we can be eternally saved, we must first realize we are eternally lost. And if a person is unwilling to admit he's a sinner, Jesus is saying, then I am of no use to you. See, who was in the worst predicament that day? Matthew and his despicable band of rabble in his home? Or the religious people sitting there whispering condemnation? A person cannot, if a person cannot admit he's a sinner, deserving of hell and condemnation, in reality, he is showing his real lostness, his real spiritual deadness. The problem for the Pharisees was that they were just too blame righteous. 
to have Jesus benefit them in any way. And maybe the problem for someone here this morning might be exactly the same. You see, isn't it true that we'll never be too bad to get to heaven? But we might be too good if that goodness keeps us from putting our trust in Christ and Christ alone. Our good works can become that hindrance instead of the help. Well, that's one of the things this story is teaching us. You might be here today and actually believe that you're living and trying to live a, a pretty decent life, and, and I commend you for that. You're trying to live by the Ten Commandments. In fact, you really haven't done anything really wrong. You've, you've been an outstanding citizen. You care for your family. You're even making some major do donations at this time of year to benevolent organizations or, or in your, with a benevolent heart. And you're doing that, though, in hopes that, that the day you die, God will take all that bundle of goodness and He'll put it on the scale and He'll take the, the things that you did not measure up on, your sin, and you'll put it on this side of the scale and you're just going to hope against hope that the goodness is going to outweigh the badness and He'll let you into heaven. And the Bible says... No, that's not how it works. Jesus came only for the sinners, for the unrighteous. He is of no value to the religious, to the self-righteous, to the person that thinks they can get there on their own if they just try hard enough. If you're here today and have thought that way, I would invite you to change your mind about that way of thinking. I would encourage you to understand what the Bible says, that God so loved the world. He gave His Son, and why he, Jesus came was for the unrighteous. It was for the sinners. To take their sin upon Himself and to die on the cross in their place, to pay the penalty for that sin so that a holy, righteous God's wrath would be satisfied. That the judgment would fall on his son Jesus so that he could offer the free gift of eternal life to anyone who simply, by faith, believes that Jesus gives that eternal life freely. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone? Because Right here in Matthew, we learn the heart of God. He doesn't care about our external religiosity. When it comes to getting to heaven, he only came for despicable, worthless, hell-bound sinners. And if you're willing to accept it, that's all of us in this room. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, put your trust in Him and Him alone. He came for you. Second of all, if you know Jesus, which I assume most of us do, this time of year should be, we, we should just be singing these songs with such gusto and thanksgiving. In fact, every day of the year we should get up and think, 
once I was lost. But he found me. Once I was spiritually blind. But he gave me sight. I was a despicable, vile sinner on my way to hell, and he, he reached down. He came for me. He came for me, and he gave me new life. And every day, we should celebrate this good news and be so thankful because we're no different than Matthew. We're no different than the, than the despicable rabble that was in his house that day. Sinners on our way to hell that he has graciously set free from our sin and brought us into his family simply because of his love. Thirdly, though, if Christmas teaches us anything, it should teach us that God came into this world for sinners, to pursue sinners, and he calls us to do the same. It's the Matthews of the world that Jesus came for. It's those tax collectors and sinners that Jesus seems so comfortable with that he came for. William Barclay in his little commentary said it this way, Jesus wanted the man that no one else wanted. He offered his friendship to the man that all others would have scorned to have called friends. We are never more like Christ than when we get up and leave our comfort zones and hang out with despicable sinners. And so the key question maybe today is, who would we not want in our home for a meal? The Pharisees would never eat with tax collectors and sinners. Who would we not want to sit at a table and have a meal with? That pesky neighbor that all the other neighbors are trying to kind of talk with the HOA and get them out of the community? And you're, you're befriending them? Traitor. That coworker, who the average worker in the office would be so embarrassed to realize they had a conversation at the drinking fountain with him. What, are you buddy with old crazy man over there? Who would you not want to sit at a table and have a meal with? Someone who doesn't look like you? Someone of different ethnic origin? An illegal immigrant? An abortion doctor? Someone of another political stripe? Maybe that, maybe that homosexual. Maybe that drug addict, that alcoholic. Who would you not want to be caught dead with? Spiritually hurting people beyond our four walls. And there was Jesus. And he said, go and learn this. To be honest with you, I find this passage very bothersome and convicting. Maybe it's one reason why I chose it. 
you know my story, most of you. I grew up in a Christian home, became a Christian when I was five years old, wanted to go to Dallas Seminary when I was in sixth grade. I mean, I've lived a pretty squeaky clean life most of my life. I go out to eat with, um, with pastoral staff. I hang out with the likes of you. Of course, I'm paid to do that. I'm paid to be good. You're good for nothing. I don't know if it's true or not. I've read over the years that within two years after someone comes to faith in Christ, all their friendships and relationships are Christians. They've kind of pulled away from all their past friends and past life, you know. And so we get excited about, hey, did you know that our new neighbor across the street is a believer? They're Christians. Yay. You know. Oh, I'm finally, praise God, I'm finally working for a company where, the, where they have Christian values and my boss is, is he's a believer. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And all my coworkers, they're all Christians. Oh, I've been waiting for this. Oh, did, did you see Jesus? He's eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners. Go and learn this. I find it very convicting. Um, what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Because God desires mercy, compassion, and not mere external religious forms. Who are we hanging out with, folks? It is said of Michelangelo when he was making that famous sculpture of uh, when Christ had come down from the cross and Mary is holding this body of Jesus. Uh, the, it was, it's, it's called the Piata. It is said that Michelangelo, being not great with means, with money, had to go to a pile where other sculptors had, had thrown away rejected pieces of marble. And he picked from those rejected pieces and he chiseled away the piata, a work of art. It is said of Michelangelo that he could actually see the image within this block of of stained marble, and all he did was take his hammer and chisel and chisel away everything else that wasn't appropriate until the image showed up. Matthew was one of those rejected pieces of marble. So are you. So am I. And God in his grace and his mercy because that's who God is. He loved us enough to be chiseling away, making a work of art. But that's why Jesus came, for the unrighteous, despicable sinners who are willing to admit it and find life in Jesus. One more thing before we wrap up. Why, why Matthew? Okay, he was industrious, entrepreneurial, you know, 
He was willing to live for himself and grab all the gusco and, you know, who cares about life and anybody else. I mean, why would you want someone like that on your team? Why Matthew? And I, I think of three things, and I just want to run them through quickly. You look at Matthew, and there was this unreserved commitment to Matthew. When Jesus said, Matthew, follow me. In Luke's account of this, same story, Luke said, and he left everything and followed Jesus. He walked away from it all. Unreserved commitment. The man was extremely wealthy. And he walked away from it all, but he was also walking away from the shame and the guilt of his sin to the great physician who healed his heart. Unreserved commitment. Second of all, he had these convictions, unashamed convictions. Matthew was willing to make a stand for Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And everything that Matthew knew about Jesus, he embraced. Unashamed convictions, he stood for Jesus. Even showing unhindered concern for all his friends. And he holds this party and he invites them all into his house. A heart of concern for his fellow rabble who needed a Savior too. We can learn a lot from this sinful tax collector turned follower of Jesus Christ, Matthew. How many Matthews are there out there in your life, in my life? God said, that's why I sent my son. I sent my son for the lost, for the hopeless, for the vile, despicable sinner. Go now and do likewise. Go and learn this. Would you pray with me? And so, Father, Jesus commands us to go and learn this, to be reminded of the hopeless sinners that are in our schools, our neighborhoods, in our workplaces in our community, in our world. And then we look at your heart, Lord, and there you were, rubbing shoulders with those that others would not, fulfilling your mission, not to call righteous people, but sinners. I pray, Father, that at this blessed time of year as we celebrate Lord you coming into our world that we won't lose sight of why you came and for whom you came and may we go and learn your heart and then trust you to form that in us I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory Amen.